I am sitting down, as Scherben said, also just to milk this moment and get all the sympathy that I can. Uh, just had a little knee operation during the week, and uh, uh, it's, it's fine. It's no problems or anything, but I've been a bit active the last couple of days, so today's a big ena. So if you don't mind, I'm going to sit. But today's also, uh, not only are we taking people into membership, joining our family, we're also saying goodbye to some people today. And not that we kick them out of membership or anything like that. That's not what this is about. But it's the last Sunday service that the Year of Your Lifers will actually be with us today. So uh, we just want to bless them today. So I'm going to ask all the Year of Your Lifers if you won't stand. And uh, just, just right where you are. Uh, they've been a wonderful group. I know some of them personally. And I know that they've enjoyed this year tremendously. And have found it to be a great adder of momentum in their lives. And uh, we are thankful for you being part of us and our family. Some of you will stay here, um, a bit, whether as leaders, some of you will just be part of our community, still live around you, and some of you will go back to where you come from. But we just want to pray for you and bless you and whatever the Lord does in your life going forward, that you will always know that we love you and we appreciate you and we believe in God's calling on your life. So won't you stretch out a hand to those special young people and let's just pray for them. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. We thank you for the Year of Your Life program. For 30 years of young people that have come through the program and having met you in, and got to know you in a more intimate way. And I pray for each of these young people. Thank you, Lord, that they go from here in faith, ready for whatever life has to ask of them and whatever contribution they have to go and make. I pray, Lord, that there would be no fear in their hearts, but that they, that they will step forward in boldness, knowing that you are for them and that you are with them knowing the plans that you have for them, to prosper them, to give them a hope. And we just speak over them your blessing, Lord. And we trust you for good things to unfold, even in the challenges that good things will unfold. And we bless them today. We bless their families. We bless their homes, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we all say, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Wonderful. Wonderful. So we are... Busy with the book of James, and um, I must say the book of James has really been a fantastic experience for me to just, this feels nice, I think I should do this more often, it's just, you know, it's very nice. <laughs> uh, the book of James has really been a fantastic experience just for me personally to work through, and even in our family, and for Natasha and I to discuss together and talk together about the book of James and all the different things, and, and uh, so today we want to move on and go to James chapter 3. Um, but uh, some said that I carefully planned it last week that I had off and didn't preach. I was supposed to preach at the South Church, but Natasha was preaching in the evening service here, so I said, well, it just makes sense that you saw me preach in the morning service at the South Church, so I ended up not preaching, and some people say that was planned because they had to do the little part that is the most difficult about the book of James. So thanks to Neil that did it here, and Natasha that did it at the South Church and at the evening service, where it's the part where he talks about faith and works together. And um, it wasn't planned that way. It just, it's one of those gracious things that the Lord does every now and then. But just to show I'm not, I'm not scared, I'm going to go back to that section a little bit and just pick up for us because I believe it's so important and uh, so fundamental. Just to remind you, the book of James is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, as we understand it, to messianic communities throughout the Roman Empire that were going through some particular challenges and difficulties. They were experiencing what we believe uh, being impoverished because of their faith. 
They were experiencing social and economic pressure. They were being ostracized by their own Jewish community because they were turning away from their Jewish faith and becoming followers of Jesus. And uh, therefore, their businesses were struggling. Their families were struggling. They were just going through some really difficult times. So James writes this very practical portion of Scripture. It's one of the highest density of verbs in a portion of Scripture you'll find in the book of James. Because he's really talking to them about the doing, about how they should do and behave in a time like this. And one of the fundamental things that James is trying to deal with for the Christian believers in that time, and, and that he really does not want them to experience, is something that in most of our translations we would read about being double-minded. Uh, a lot of the commentators actually say being double-souled is a better word to describe that. It's to get caught in a space in between. It's to get to a place where you become inactive because you don't know, should I go this way or should I go this way? And I think we all know what that feels like. We all have this dynamic within us that sometimes we desire for something on the one hand, but on the other hand, there's another desire in us. And we get caught in a space where we're battling between our desires. And we're trying to figure out what is the right desire and which desire should I give into and how do I deal with this struggle and sometimes in that struggle, we can actually get caught in a place where we become inactive. And we end up doing nothing because we're not certain what to do. And we begin to procrastinate. And I don't know about you, but procrastination is a real problem. In the world we live in today, it seems to be a growing problem. Because we've got so much information available to us, we can spend so much time trying to figure out what is the right thing that we end up doing nothing. Because we're so scared that we do the wrong thing. And that's why sometimes in leadership talk they will say uh, a clear decision today is better than a perfect decision tomorrow. Because we, we can live for the illusion of getting everything right all the time. Now, as believers, we want to try and get everything right. But even in that, we, we must be careful. And James writes to the believers and says, don't get stuck in this place of indecision. Don't live your life in a place of insecurity, but... There's something God is doing in you, and you've got to go for it. You've got to hedge your bets and go for what God is doing. And uh, I was trying to think in my own life of an example of my tendency to sometimes get stuck in the place of being double-sold. And I was really trying to think of an of a, of a illustration. And then as I was brushing my teeth this morning, it came to me because of my toothbrush. Earlier this year, I was in the UK, and I needed a new toothbrush. So I went to a Boots uh, in London and went and found this toothbrush and it was on special. Anything that's on special is always attractive to me. So I bought this toothbrush and it's one of these toothbrushes that is a, it's an electronic to electric toothbrush, but it works with a little battery. So it's not a rechargeable one. It's you use it and then you throw it away, but it's electric. So it's very nice and soft on the gums. You know, as you get older, that's very important and you don't have to put pressure on it and it works fantastic. And I love this toothbrush. The problem is you don't really find many of them in our country. So I've been using this toothbrush for about five months now, which is probably longer than I should be using it, but I like it so much. And then about three weeks ago, I found one in one of our stores and I bought it. It's not very cheap, but I bought it. You know, I thought I deserve a proper toothbrush, you know, praying for people. I should have a breath that smells reasonable. So, you know, I had some spiritual reason why I need a good toothbrush. So I bought this toothbrush. The problem is I haven't opened it up yet. Because I'm so afraid that I'm not going to find the next one, I'm not using this one. 
So I've still got it in my drawer at home. It's lying right there, and every day I'm still using the old toothbrush. It's now battery's flat. It doesn't even work anymore. Now it's not even doing what it's supposed to. I'm still using, I'm now using it as a regular old toothbrush, but I'm so afraid that I'm not going to find this toothbrush when the new one is finished that I'm stuck in a place of indecision. Any of you have ever been in a, perhaps you're not as stupid and as pedantic as I am when it comes to things like toothbrushes, but don't laugh at me. I'm an injured man. How can you be so unkind? (laughs) But I'm sure you can all identify that there's places in our lives where we sometimes just get stuck. And I'm using a silly illustration for a much deeper dynamic in our lives, that we can get stuck in a space of being double-souled. And James is writing to these communities, and he's saying, you are going through difficult times. And part of your difficulty is that you believe something And you're giving your life for a belief and a faith that you have. But on the other hand, you're experiencing that that faith and belief that you have are actually causing you difficulties. And seems to be causing for you not to have a better life, but in some areas, particularly in your social economic realities, you're having a more difficult life. And you you can be caught between these two things. Do you hold on to your faith? Or do you give in to the practice and the reality. And how do you live with this? Because be careful that you don't get stuck in a place of just surviving. And where you, and I know it's, it's sometimes as Christians, you know, if you've, if you've been through a time, for instance, where you're praying about something in your life. Let's say there's a, that you've been diagnosed with a sickness. And you're praying for healing, but healing's not coming. It's, it, it's, it's tempting to get to a place where you just say, oh, well, if God wants to heal me, he's going to heal me. And you become inactive in your faith. You sort of let, you just say, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I love God. God loves me. And, you know, I'm not going to hold on. And I'm not going to trust for healing. I'm just going to allow God. Or you can get onto the other side where you claim God's going to heal me and nothing less than God healing you is God actually coming through for you. And you get caught in a place like that. The life of a believer is so often holding those tensions of completely trusting God with full faith, yet with a surrendered heart. And that's a difficult place to be, but it cannot be a place of inaction. It has to be a very positive place, a place where we step forward continuously into what God is doing in our lives. And it's in that space where James is writing and where he's wrestling, and he, he writes, in, and last week, as Neil spoke about it and did a fantastic job of, of, of just taking us to James 2, and I just want to, sorry, my, I just want to take us to just remind us of James 2, verse 21 to 24, before I go into James 3. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So James takes this this positive road where he says a believer is somebody that does things. A believer is not just defined by what they believe, they're also defined by what they do. Faith requires response. It requires activity. It must be visible. It must be seen. It's not just some obscure, abstract thing that I believe. It affects how I do things. When he offered his son Isaac on the altar, you see his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. 
And so it happened, just as the scripture says, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. And it's those little words in James that causes quite a lot of controversy in theological terms and in study of the scripture. Because Paul teaches us that we are saved by faith and by faith alone. The solideo of, uh, of, of, of um, solifide, sorry, of uh, Martin Luther. We are saved by faith and by faith alone. And we believe that. We proclaim that as an evangelical church. We believe that none of us are saved by good works. We are saved solely on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice that he made that paid for our sins. And because we believe that that sacrifice was sufficient to cover our sins and to pay the price for our sins and to forgive us our sins, we are saved based on that faith and faith alone. But here James says, so you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. And he brings this tension again. Because I think on the one hand, James is trying to say, And I don't think he's going against what Paul is saying. We don't believe he's saying what Paul is saying is not right. He's fully agreement with what Paul is saying. He's just saying your actions is a big part of your faith. What you do is how your faith is manifest. It's the working together of actions and belief that saves us. It's not our actions that saves us. It's our belief that saves us. Natasha, when she spoke about it last week, she said it's not faith plus actions that save us. It's faith alone, but faith, if it's real, leads to actions. It's the root and the fruits thing. The the roots of our salvation is not our works, it's our faith. But if our faith is real, it will have the fruits of a lifestyle that honors and glorifies God. You cannot separate the two from one another. And that's sometimes the tension we have to hold. While on the one hand we proclaim to people, you are saved by grace and by grace alone. And, and, and what you do doesn't change your salvation. We must be careful that we're not saying to somebody what you do doesn't matter. Because it does. It matters in our salvation. Because it becomes the reality of our salvation. I don't know if you've heard the story of a, of a young girl in, in England. Uh, her name was uh, Rebecca Scowcroft. And Rebecca Scowcroft was a 12-year-old girl that up until the age of 12 ate nothing but chocolate. She, her whole diet consisted of chocolate. In the morning for breakfast, she would have 15 blocks of baking chocolate and about 10 chocolate fingers. If you know what a chocolate finger is, it's like a boudoir biscuit covered with chocolate that they get in the UK. This was where her breakfast. While the rest of her family would eat oatmeal or eggs or whatever, she would have chocolates for breakfast. Even her lunch and dinner would have chocolate. She would sometimes eat Rice Krispies, but the Rice Krispies had to be made with chocolate milk. And so everything she ate was only based on chocolate. The reason she did this was not because she loved chocolate so much, was because she had a fear of any other type of food. She had a very rare type of food phobia. And uh, this phobia led her to believe that anything other than chocolate is dangerous to her. Now, some of you may think, "Mm mm-hmm, perhaps I have this phobia. (laughs) She literally, it was for her, like if you had to think of the worst kind of food that if we had to make you eat a grasshopper, or I know for some of you this is a delicacy, but for me, 
A mupani worm is not a delicacy. I've had to eat one because I love other people. And you know what the Bible says, what they put before you, you eat. But I promise you, it goes down with much prayer and supplication. <laughs> I, you know, if, or whatever you may think is the worst thing, that if somebody had to put that on a sandwich and make you eat a sheep's eye. Now again, if somebody here comes from the Karoo, they think, hmm, like a scarp workies. So I don't know. We're a very multicultural church, so it's difficult to find out one thing. But just whatever you can imagine, if I had to say to you, you have to eat that, and everything in you goes, no, I cannot, that's for her what it felt like if it wasn't chocolate. She had a phobia of any other type of food. She had a somewhere in her life, and you know that so much about food is about control. It's one of the control mechanisms in our lives. That's why even little children, I can remember our, our sons, when they're little, you know, when they're like just starting to eat solid food, one, what's one of the first things they do? When you, you, know, you bring that spoon, they go, Nyeh! I remember our one son one night, I left home to go do visitation at about six, and when I got back at eight, he's still eating the same piece of chicken. And his mother was exasperated by then because he would just go, Nyeh! Because it's a form of control. Nobody can make you eat something if you don't want to eat it. So our relationship with food can become something very strong in our lives. So for Rebecca Scowcroft, her relationship with food, somewhere along the line, something happened that internally caused her to have a fear response to food. And she started believing something. And no matter what they said to her, you couldn't change what she believed. So through therapy, they had to work with her for a long period of time. So what one of the therapists did is they slowly introduced, they didn't take the chocolate away, they just added a few things to the chocolate. And to start convincing her and showing her that her fear of other food was unfounded. And they started doing it with something as risky as toast. I know toast is very dangerous. You know, toast always falls on the buttered side. It cannot be trusted. But they, they decided, so they cut little blocks of toast. And every day with her meals, they would just begin with feeding her toast. Now, the toast didn't save her. What were they trying to do? They were trying to reprogram her internal paradigm. They were trying to make an internal adjustment that had to be reinforced and expressed through an external behavioral change. And... You know, when we think of our salvation, now this is not a perfect example, you can't take it too far. But what I'm trying to say to you, we, when we get saved, our salvation happens because of an internal change that happens in us. We get saved because we become born again. When Nicodemus asked Jesus, and I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, when he asked him, Lord, how do I get included? How do I become part of of, of your team? How do I become part of your family? Jesus said to him, you must be born again. An internal change must happen. Now, when we hear the words being born again, to us, it's a very positive experience, but we forget that actually Jesus was actually quite exulting at that moment. What he literally was saying to Nicodemus is he was saying to them, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again because the first time you were born, it didn't come out right. You're not quite right. There's something wrong with you. The first time you were born, you, got out, you came out defective. That's why you have to be born again. 
Jesus didn't say to Nicodemus, listen, here's a bunch of laws, here's a bunch of rules. From now on, if you keep to all of these rules and you become a different kind of person and, and, and change your behavior, then you'll be included. He said to him, you are so far lost that you have to start all over again. You have to go right back from scratch and start life new. Only if you start new will you be able to achieve salvation, will you be able to get saved. You have to be born again. And that's our story, isn't it? We were made by God. Let me personalize it. You were made by God. I was made by God. The scripture teaches us that he made me in his image. He made me with a plan and a purpose. He knitted me together in my mother's womb. He, he made me with all the love in the world and with intention for me to be good and to have a good life. But we're all born in a world tainted by sin because of what happened in the fall in the Garden of Eden. None of us came out right. We all came out defective. We all came out with something in us broken. And that something that's in us is broken is that, that we have a rebellion in us. There's a rebelliousness that we get born with that is that it tends away from God, that desires not to please God, but to please ourselves. We have this, this tendency to want to do things our way and want to do whatever we want to do, not whatever is what God wants to do. And that's the fundamental problem. So when we get born defective, that's our defect, is we're rebellious. And we live our lives, and, and some of us express that rebellion a little bit more clear than others, but we all have it. Depending on your situation, perhaps, or your personality, or many different things, and which are hard to explain, and I don't think we can quantify, some of us go really all out to be outwardly rebellious against God. Some of us are really calm, and we look like we're actually not rebellious against God, but we actually are. Even when we're trying to be good without God, we're being rebellious against Him. But this is our problem. We're defective. And so when the Lord Jesus comes and he says, you have to be born again, he's saying you have to stop existing in this defective way and get born anew. And this new birth is birth in the spirit. It's to be born with the spirit of God within me. It's to be born by the blood of Christ cleansing me from my sin, forgiving me of all unrighteousness and declaring me to be a righteous person, not be because of who I am, because of Jesus' what he did for me and because he paid the price for me. And when I put my faith in him, that new life enters me and I am born again. I have a new nature. There's a new life inside of me. There's an inner change that takes place. Now my story begins of learning how to live consistent with this new nature that's inside of me. Up until that point, up until the point I'm born again, I live consistent with my old nature, which is rebelling against God, so you would see it. It would just manifest through my life. It just happens. A lot of the time, we can't even help ourselves. It just happens. Now, if we get to know the law and and. and, and Paul talks about this in Romans 7, where he talks about, he says, you know, when, when I've been taught the law, I know the right that I must do, but yet I'm unable to do it. 
And, and again, he talks about this double-souledness where you get caught in this place of you know what God wants you to do, but because your nature hasn't been renewed, you only have the law externally. You're trying so hard to do what is right, but you end up what doing is what is wrong. That's why Jesus says the only hope is you have to be born again. This nature in you has to change. So now if I'm born again, I have this new nature. What is the new nature? It's no longer this defective nature that wants to rebel against God. It's a new nature that desires to know God, that desires to please God, that desires to live with Him, to honor Him, to, to live a life that, that is right before Him. And this new nature is now within me. But now my challenge is the external changes that needs to happen so that I begin to live consistently with this new nature. So when I use the language of salvation, I, I have been saved. As I sit here today, I'm not completely regenerate in my actions in, in terms of that I am completely new, everything I'm doing is perfect, and if I proclaim anything else, please shoot me. Or remove me from the platform at least, okay, if you don't wanna shoot me. If ever I say to you that everything I'm doing is right, I am deceived. And if any of you do the same, you are deceived. We still are learning how to live this new nature. But I'm completely saved because of this new nature that's within me. And when Jesus sees me and when God sees me, he sees this new nature in me. So I am saved. But as this new nature is now changing me and transforming me, and every time I choose to obey this new nature and live consistently with it, I am being saved. Does that make sense to you? And it's this process that's happening in my life of me being adjusted according to who I am. And this is what James talks about when he says that you are not saved by faith alone, but by your works also. He's not saying faith does not save you. He's saying if your faith has saved you, you'll see it. I, I, Natasha put it this way. She says the gospel demands a reaction. It demands a changed life. Otherwise, it's not the gospel. I cannot say to you, I'm saved, but I just keep on living the same way as I've lived before I got saved, and sometimes even do worse. Because then you go, but then what does being saved mean? If Rebecca Scowcroft says, oh, she's saved from this phobia of chocolates, but she only eats chocolates every day, you would be right to say, are you really saved from your phobia? She may color it differently, but... But as we see the behavior changes, we see the salvation that is real within us. And what James therefore does throughout the book of James is he's trying to bring these two things together. He's saying it's your faith that saves you. But don't underestimate the importance of your actions. It's your actions that shows your faith. It's your actions that transforms your life consistently and that transforms this world. But your actions can never be as a result of anything else than your faith. The two working together. And so when he gets into James 3 now, he says, if this is true that your actions are so important as part of your faith expression, one of the first things that you need to show your actions in is in your words is in your speech, the tongue. And throughout the book of James, he talks a lot about how we speak. This, this seemingly so natural thing, so common thing among us, that we slip up with our tongues. 
he pulls front and center and he says, if you have this new nature in you, one of the first places people should be able to see it and recognize it and celebrate it is in the fact that you speak differently. You don't speak from the old nature anymore. You speak from the new nature. So let's read together in James 3 verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. So James is literally saying, man, if you can just control your tongue, you'll almost be perfect. It'll be probably as close as perfect as you can get to. Now, I don't think that's unrealistic for him to say that. How many of you can think just of this week where your tongue has gotten you in trouble? It seems to be the hardest most slippery thing to take a hold of. It just has a life of its own. How many of you have said something and gone, where did that come from? Our tongues, are, it's, it's a phenomenal little thing. And James says here, he says, we make so many mistakes, all of us. And I think we should all be quick to put up our hands and say, man, my tongue gets me in trouble. We make many mistakes. And, and, and he says to the, to the fellow brothers and sisters, he says, dear brothers and sisters, I don't think many of you should become teachers. Should put yourself in the position where you're actually trying to instruct other people about how to live because your tongues get you in trouble so much that you don't have much credibility by trying to tell other people how they should live. And I just want to remind you, and this is a fantastic portion of scripture, if you are in my position this morning, that for he who teach will be judged more strictly. Wow. Now, I know our theology teaches us that we, we're not going to get judged anymore because we've been judged in the blood, you know, Christ, and the judgment of Christ has been, God's judgment's been executed on Christ, so, you know, we don't have a picture of some future judgment. So let's call it a performance appraisal. It seems that James indicates here somewhere, and we've spoken about it before, about are there rewards and all of these things that it's possible just entertain the thought that it's not about you, it's about me. He's speaking about teachers, you know, so let me just make it about me for a moment. That there's going to come a day in the future, you know, when I've done, died and gone to heaven, that I'm going to have a performance appraisal. And this is going to be a performance appraisal like no other, because it's going to be the Lord himself doing the performance appraisal. The one that whom you cannot lie and you cannot make it look better than what it is. He knows every thought, every intent, every word. And he says here that for he who teaches, his performance appraisal will be doubly strict than anybody else. Wow. Suddenly I'm not so comfortable here anymore. This doesn't feel like it's a great career choice to do this. I think we all agree with it though. Don't you think it's right that people that teach in a community, and I, don't, I, I think it, it should be applied in in teaching in schools, it should be implied in different spaces, but people that have the, 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 the privilege to instruct others, they should really be more careful with what they say. You know, our, our rhythm that we spoke about in, in James, where he says, you know, quick to listen, slow to, anger, uh, slow to speak, slow to anger. When it comes to teachers, that sounds like quick to listen, slow. Slow, double slow. Do you get the, the idea? It's double. And I think people that teach 
should really take that to heart. So people like me, others that teach in this community, whether it's from this stage or in other platforms and other places, life group leaders even, can I include you in this? We, we should recognize that we must take great care with our speech. And I don't think any of us have a problem with that. That what we say as leaders should line up with what we believe. I know they say actions speak louder than words, but can I remind you that words speak pretty loud? Words matter. Words have impact. Every one of us know that words have an impact. And we should be careful. But before you think, for those of you that don't uh, say, ah, luckily I don't teach, so this is not about me, can I take you to Matthew 12 quickly, just before you get too comfortable. In Matthew 12, verse 35, Jesus to 37 says the following. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. I, I think we all know this, that what is in the heart just spills out of the mouth. So often, you don't know what's going on in a person until they speak. Then you know what's going on inside of them. It just comes out. It has this knack of just spilling over. But Jesus then says in verse 36, and I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. <laughs> that doesn't include teachers only. That's all of you. Every single one of you at your performance appraisal. It says here that every idle word you speak, you will give an account for. How many of you have built up some account this week? An idle word is a word that you just don't care what it does. You don't care where it lands. You don't care the effect that it has. You're just saying it because of what you feel or what you think or what you want to say. You don't really care about what it does. That's an idle word. You didn't plant the word. You threw the word. That's an idle word. He says in verse 37, the words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Now again, I'm saved by faith and by grace. But I do think it matters what I say. I think that's the point Matthew and James and Jesus in Matthew is making. That our words speak volumes about what's going on inside of us. And we cannot have a life where on the one hand we proclaim to have this new nature but what you see for coming forth out of us is the old nature. There's a problem there. So that's why James continues. Let's read, and I'm going to read the rest quickly. James 3, verse 3 to 5. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. He's just saying to us that just like a big ship is turned by comparatively a small piece of wood, a rudder, so your whole life can be turned by your speech. Your speech, your tongue, has directive qualities in your life. It sets the direction for your life. It, and not only for your life, but it can set the direction for life around you. I was driving this just the other day, not this week, a while ago, and uh, I was driving, just, you know, normally driving, 
And I, I know just an elderly gentleman doing what some elderly people do sometimes, and I know nobody in this room ever does it, but some elderly people believe that they've earned the right to change lanes and they don't have to give anybody warning. That, you know, they are beyond, they've evolved beyond the need for indicators. Have you ever experienced that? And this was happened to be an elderly gentleman, and he just changed lanes and just went from the middle lane to the, to the right lane and didn't look, wasn't aware of anybody around him, and behind him he cut right in front of, of this mother that was transporting her children in the back. But he didn't even notice her. He didn't even see her. He, he didn't even know she was there. But she lost it. I mean, I could see she lost it. The spittle was hitting the front window of her, of her car. I mean, she was using all the fingers she could think of to try and communicate to him her dismay. The words that I could see, I didn't have to be able to read lips. The children's reaction in the car told me that she is angry. The beautiful thing was, the older gentleman didn't have a clue. He was listening to his music, thinking about where he was going. Perhaps he was going to go buy a pie or a burger or something. He was just enjoying life, driving along. His environment didn't change. His world was comfortable. But I went, I'm so glad I'm not in that car with that lady. Because her environment became toxic all of a sudden. Her children had to deal and brace themselves at that moment. Isn't it amazing how our tongues can impact our lives? And we forget when he, and he says here, uh, Tiny spark sets a great forest afire. The fire begins at your own front door. Normally, if you set a fire, a forest to fire with your tongue, it starts because you've lit your own life on fire. You've contaminated your own space. You've brought forth all of this poison out of your own life. Jesus said it's not what goes in the mouth that contaminates us, but it is what comes out of the mouth. Because it brings forth all of this ugliness. And we can set the world alight and on fire so easily. And particularly in the days of social media, I think we should heed this and be so aware. Because nowadays we can t type a message on a device and send it into the blue yonder and forget that there's somebody else at the end of that message. Because we don't see where that message lands. We don't see the facial, uh, we don't have the recognition of the person's face or body language when we send the message. We just send, oh, well, I'm just saying what I'm feeling. I, I know it's, it's harsh, but I just wanted to say what I wanted to say. And we must be so careful. James is saying to us as children of God, we cannot give ourselves that leeway. We cannot do that. He carries on and he says in, Verse 6 to 10, and the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. Whoa. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises the Lord our Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing coming, pouring, come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. I think we're so easy to say to ourselves, ah, oh, you know, it's okay, we all do it. It's so easy to say, oh, I just had a tough day. I was so frustrated. So I just lashed out. We give ourselves such license. But James writes to these believers 
that are experiencing extremely difficult situations because they're being slandered by other people. They are in this situation where other people are speaking half-truths about them and spreading rumors about them and talking bad about them. And he says to them, if you have the new nature of Christ in you, you cannot have coming, flowing out of you the old nature. It is not right. You cannot give yourself that space. You can't say to yourself, it's okay. Because then you are breaking down the salvation that is within you. And I don't think he's trying to say that to make us feel bad or to condemn us. He's just raising the standard and he's saying we should never settle for it. The scripture is clear that whenever we make these mistakes, we should be quick to repent and ask for forgiveness. We should own it very quickly. Keep short accounts with ourselves. When we speak bad of somebody, we should deal with it in the same manner as, as he deals with it here. When our tongues gets us in trouble, let's not just say, oh, you know, I'm just human. Let's say what he says. It is lit on fire by hell itself. This is not just innocent mistakes we're making. And it's not judgment we pass over one another. That's not the idea. It's me, how I look at my own life and say, I just, I want to let the new nature that's within me spill out of me. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to please the Father. 10 to 12. And so blessing and cursing coming, pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with a both fresh and, water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, and you cannot draw fresh water from a salty spring. If my speech is not changed by my salvation, then my salvation is not affecting my life. And then I've got to ask real questions. Surely there's grace, there's forgiveness, there's space for us to learn. And in our discipleship, we have lots of mercy and grace for one another, but there must be a calling to growth and to change and transformation. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. I love that. The humility that comes from wisdom. In our day and age, humility is becoming scarcer and scarcer because we live in a world that celebrates self-promotion. And even in the church of the Lord Jesus, we must be careful that we're not using our social media platforms to promote and claim things that are not really true, but because we're just trying to stand up in the competition against everybody else. It frustrates me that every church is now a revival meeting if you look at people's social media. Let us be honest that every time we gather as a church, it's not a revival. Is that okay to say that? Sometimes we're just together as a family and there's lots of good things that happen. But we shouldn't claim things. The point I'm trying to make is we shouldn't claim these grandiose things because that's not truth. That's not humility. And ultimately you get tripped up because he says here, but if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart. Don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Forget looking about demonic spirits and you know, spirits that come down the bloodline. not saying those things aren't real. Just when we allow for selfish ambition to take root in our churches, in our families, in our workplaces, in our nation, the, the demonic stuff is right there. 
because it will destroy. It gets given the platform to destroy. And that's why he says in verse 16, for wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? But none of that's possible because we make it happen. It's only possible because of the nature that is within us. You and I now have the same nature of Jesus that hung on the cross that said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. The same nature that after Peter disowned him, went to Peter and said, do you love me, Peter? And gave him an opportunity to restore, to be restored. The same nature that said to the robber and the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the nature we have in us. And it's from that nature that we want to spill over into this world. And we will make mistakes. We have made mistakes. And that's why the Lord Jesus gives us instruments to consistently renew ourselves. And one of those instruments is communion. You know the scripture when it says when we come together to have communion, we shouldn't do it lightly, but we should actually practice judgment. We should do our own little performance appraisal when we have communion. Every one of us, the scripture says, we should sit here this morning as we're going to have communion right now. And before we take the communion, we should think about our lives. We should think about our consistency. Is the new nature being expressed with us? And if one of the areas where it challenges us particularly is to say, if you know that there's somebody that's got some, if there's a relational breakdown, if sometimes perhaps because of your words, there's been difficulty between you and somebody, don't just take the communion and try and cover over that stuff. First deal with it. You can't just cover over it. You can't just paper over those things. You have to come in repentance to the Lord and say, Lord, I failed. And you and I shouldn't be scared to own our failure. That's not judgment. That's mercy. We have the blood of Christ that any sin I bring to him is forgiven. It has been forgiven and is being forgiven. I shouldn't have a reason to to try and cover it up or make myself look better. That's a lost battle. I'd rather own a few sins that I didn't do than miss some that I did. Because his blood is so amazing. There's nothing it cannot forgive. And so we have instruments like these moments, which was born out of a time when Judas sat with Jesus and he lied to Jesus. He deceived Jesus. He spoke words that was hurtful. But in that moment, Jesus said, when you gather, do this in my name. In the reality of our failure, he said, remember my body that was given so that you can be made whole. Remember my blood that was spilt so that you can be purified and washed clean. So I'm going to invite you to share communion together with us this morning. And as Herman said earlier, there's, there's the tables upstairs that are available. There's in the foyer. And we're going to end the service at this point. So if you go and have communion and then want to leave, you're welcome. The worship team's going to uh, accompany us with a time of music and just help us to be in a space. But before we go into participating in the communion. Can we take this seriously this morning? And and there's no judgment, please. There's no condemnation here. There's none of us that have to feel bad at this point in time, other than feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That if I've been idle with my words, 
This is a great time to say, Lord, forgive me. I want the new nature to be expressed through me. Holy Spirit, I need you. I need you. I need your fruit in my life. I'm not going to do better by trying to be better. I'm going to do better by submitting to you. By resisting my old self. Denying my desires for myself. And allowing you to make me who you intended me originally to be. By submitting to you. So can we pray together? Lord Jesus. I'm so thankful today with my dear brothers and sisters. With my family here today. For the blood of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that this is not a fair-weather gospel, but this is a real gospel that recognizes our real need for salvation, that really took care of our sin problem and is really transforming us into a new nature in our everyday practical life, working out our salvation. I thank you for every brother and sister of mine Everyone that, like me, has failed, that has been inconsistent, that has allowed filthy water to come out of the clean spring that you have set within me. Today, we just own that, Lord, we, so that we can come and receive mercy and grace and forgiveness. So, Lord, we pray right now, if there's anything that we have allowed to build up between us and somebody else that we need to set right first that we need to step into that space and to allow the blood of Jesus to transform that then speak to us right now Holy Spirit we don't have to go digging around in our hearts we're not looking for something but just if the Lord says something just attend to that right now it may be that you can't go and speak to somebody else, but you can just say, Lord, forgive me. I realize that my mistake that I've made. I realize that I've fallen short. Forgive me. And then you can have communion. Or it may be that you first have to go and sit with somebody and share communion with them. Lord, give us wisdom how to do these things and to do them right. But your blood is expensive, Lord. Your blood is costly. Your blood is, is so dear to us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the liberation of life and life in abundance in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that I have been made whole, that my sins are forgiven, that in Jesus I am perfect, and pure thank you for your blood and for your body as we celebrate it together today Lord we pray that you will unite us so that we can glorify your name and we thank you for that in Jesus name if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus you're so welcome to please have communion with us you don't have to be a member of this church if you love Jesus if he's your savior have communion with us as we end with the service, you're welcome. If you need prayer for something this morning, come and let us pray with you. It'll be such an honor. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, come forward. Our pastor's on my right-hand side. And just say to them, I want to give my heart to Jesus, and they'll help you.
but please go and share communion. You can have it privately on your own. You can share it with somebody. If you need help, if you can't move around like me, then somebody will bring communion to you if you raise your hand and just wave. And, or if you see somebody around you that can't serve themselves communion, won't you go get them and bring them communion? We're family together. May the Lord bless you and may you have a fantastic, wonderful week filled with the grace and the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen.